joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Neve Cleary, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers. On this episode, we are looking at future trends in insurance litigation. I was joined by Joanna Page, James Cooper and Ben Lynch QC, and we discussed the kind of insurance disputes that are coming over the horizon in the long and short term. Joanna Page is a partner at Allen & Overy, where she developed Allen & Overy's contentious insurance group. She's a member of the editorial board for PLC and is the editor of the Insurance Disputes Law Review. She's interim chair of CEDR, the mediation body, and she teaches contract and company law at Cambridge University. James Cooper is the global head of insurance at Clyde & Co. He also heads its financial institutions and D&O team. His practice covers financial institutions and D&O claims, and he is currently involved in a number of catastrophe claims, particularly class action claims emanating from the US. Ben Lynch is a QC at Fountain Court Chambers. He specialises in insurance, commercial litigation, professional negligence, competition and telecoms. He is an editor of McGillivray on insurance law and has appeared in a number of leading cases, including the Supreme Court cases of AIG on aggregation and Travellers on Section 51 costs applications. He has also appeared in the recent FCA test case on business interruption insurance. In the episode, we discuss a range of topics, including insurance disputes likely to arise out of the COVID-19 pandemic, other than business interruption coverage, because that's very much at the front and centre of legal news at the moment. We also discuss more long-term trends, such as the impact of climate change on the insurance market, and likely developments on discrete and, to date, under-litigated issues, such as the duty of fair presentation under the Insurance Act 2015. I hope that you enjoy the episode. On today's episode, we're looking at future trends in insurance litigation. And joining me today are Joanna Page, partner at Allen & Overy, James Cooper, partner at Clyde & Co, and Ben Lynch, QC. Thank you all very much for joining me today. So our first topic is inevitably COVID-related, because it's fair to say that it's been a rather chaotic year for the insurance industry, and particularly due to the major upheaval that COVID-19 has caused for the insurance market, as with lots of other markets. Now, obviously, disputes uh, relating to coverage under business interruption policies have been making the headlines for the past few months, but we're going to steer clear of that topic today as a number of our panellists are involved in that litigation. Instead, we're going to start off by looking at some of the other insurance disputes that have been likely to arise out of COVID-19 that haven't been given so much airtime to date. So what other areas are likely to see a jump in claims in the wake of the pandemic? Have you already started to see disputes emerging in any other areas? And what are they? James? Yeah, so I think as a uh, insurance team at Clyde & Co, we've started to see claims in a number of business lines coming through. In particular, uh, we're starting to see a number of contingency claims. We're starting to see the beginning of trade credit claims come through. And then also in the DNO arena in particular, there's been a, a real hardening of the market. But uh, some of that's driven by lots of claims coming through. But what we're starting to see are DNO claims off the back of the recessionary forces coming through the market. So not directly COVID related, but where we are anticipating seeing a large wave of claims is off the back of recessions on, on a global basis. But it is quite interesting when you look at the number of COVID claims coming in that actually we're seeing a really big spike in the UK and in the US. Lots of other regions, much less so. Whether that's because of the penetration of insurance in places like Asia, we don't know. Uh, but the real spike for us has been the UK and the US. Is that consistent with your own experience, Joanna? 
I would absolutely echo what James said in relation to DNO. So for those DNO programs which have renewed in the last six months, we've seen a significant hardening of the market and difficulty on renewal where certain insurers are exiting the market. And that has then led to difficulties about how to renew cover and the nature of the notification that has to be submitted before the renewal with the new insurers demanding that anything that could in any view conceivably be a claim or a potential claim should be notified. So that's that's created, I have to say, a huge amount of anxiety because sometimes there's an apprehension of an issue where companies are going through a particularly rocky patch, but the issue is not yet really crystallized. So that's that I have to say has been a a massive headache. And I know that's for, for the listener, it may well be they, they're saying, but that's not COVID, it's it's DNO, but it's it's coming directly out of the difficulties which have emerged in the economy caused by COVID. And is it also because it struck me that actually, as you say, it's not wholly divorced from COVID, but I mean, what other factors are driving that? I feel like that's something where there has been a trend, you know, that, you know, COVID has simply escalated. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, sorry, I was going to say DNO. DNO was becoming a distress book for a number of insurers uh, for at least the last 18 months. And so we started to see a real hardening of the market uh, 18 months ago, or a year ago, 18 months, with uh, the brokers in particular starting to try to re-engage with their clients around the the level of price increase that was going to be needed to make so many of those books more profitable. Uh, and so it started before COVID. Uh, in particular, I think where we saw DNO as it widened out in the soft market over the last decade, really starting to pick up a huge amount of regulatory investigations. That's been the real driver for claims in this country and internationally. Uh, and also lots of follow-on litigation, follow-on investigations from the US as well. That's caused maybe less frequency, but probably very high severity, more derivative actions around the world. For instance, uh, European companies becoming involved in derivatives uh, in the US. So a big spike in the US uh, federal securities class actions, for instance. So all of this has been leading to a hardening of the market, which COVID uh, and the beginning of recessionary claims uh, has really made a lot of insurers start to uh, sit up and have a think about whether to even stay in those those parts of um, the market. And that, as Joanna has said, has led to a number of people uh, unable to uh, renew policies or at least to renew with different insurers and, and much lower programmes. And is that also a trend that we're likely to see here and not simply in overseas markets? Particularly, I'm thinking of the number of mass claimant claims that are now coming to the English courts with increasing regularity. Is that an increasing source of concern for, you know, insurers insuring in the English market? Yes and no. I think people have been looking at it for for a while since the RBS shareholder class action in particular, things like Dieselgate in Europe. But actually probably what's driving the domestic DNI market is the SMEs and the real worry about insolvency events and how that's going to impact on DNOs. So collective class actions in this country um, are a factor, but they're nowhere near a, a high severity event because the number of claims is so low. Everybody looks at them and of course the DNI market has paid out um, a huge amount of money in relation to some of these claims. But what's really driving the market is is more attritional insolvency type events and the regulatory events. 
I'd agree with all of that, James. I think that's absolutely the case. It's not yet, it might in the future be, it's not class action type claims, even though the possibility for that is much, much greater now than it, it was even 10 years ago in the international context. And the potential has grown even in the in England and Wales jurisdiction. It's the insolvency risk and there's a, a sort of a spin-off of types of litigation on how discovery clauses work and the like. And whilst insureds are finding it difficult to replace their program and then scrabbling around the market and having to extend cover in the short term. So there's lots of little satellite bumps in the road which are being gradually worked through in this context. So I'd agree with all of that. And is there any advice that you could give to clients who are looking to either improve their prospects of placing insurance in this market or protecting themselves when it comes to the claims notification stage, you know, when the worst has transpired? They have to start early and have a really good broker who has a proper um, open conversation with the insurance market. So it's it's vital they start earlier, don't uh, get squashed to the last week or so of placing their program because then they will have no leverage and uh, be unprepared. And if they have to put in a last minute notification, they won't have done the proper groundwork so that they've gathered it together, they've due diligence the information so that it's a really reliable notification. I think if possible, stay with the same lead. Don't just go for price try and go for um, an insurer who understands your business and has stuck with you for a while, if possible, appreciating it may not always be possible. Uh, And don't go just for price. This is now a, um, it's still not an expensive class of business. It's just more expensive than it was last year. And that'll be the same anywhere you go. But I would again echo everything that Joanne has said, early engagement and lots of engagement. That's what insurers like to see. One thing I've seen, which I, I don't know if it's consistent across everyone's experience, is that the kinds of issues that have come up are the same issues that already existed, but, but everyone's much more stressed. And that's stress on the insurer side and on the insured side. And so the, the potential for an argument to be taken by an insured or an insurer probably exists, probably always existed. But because of the pressures in the market at the moment, in, in pulling in all different directions, everybody's desperate for advice and to to try to sort of see what can be done. And so there's a slightly frantic tempo that things are happening at, which isn't always the best way to resolve issues. Times that by just the vast influx of work uh, and the commercial pressures on everybody. And there's a slightly febrile atmosphere to some of the issues that I've been seeing that probably pre-existed frankly, COVID, but are indirectly affected by COVID because of the, the pressures that everybody's under. And that add then also the, the much more you know, fundamental systemic points that you raise does give rise to real arguments where perhaps in a smoother world, things would go through uh, with less dispute. But I don't know if that's a shared experience or not. Or, you know, It may just be. Yeah, as Joanna said, they're a good broker. If you get a good broker, then they can take a lot of that out. Uh, and there are some good brokers out there. Good brokers have been through a hard market before. That's that's what's going to get you a good deal at the moment. Returning to the more COVID-related issues or COVID-specific ones, I mean, Ben, obviously you would be, you know, in and out of court and therefore at the sharp end of seeing what's happening in terms of disputes that are emerging. I mean, obviously leaving business interruption to one side, what other disputes are you starting to see bubbling up now? Funny enough, almost before 
the business interruption claims came the event cancellation claims. They they seem to happen before I, I'd even read the news about COVID. In a way, they just they came out of nowhere and then went away again really quickly. The large, I draw a distinction. I don't again. I don't know if this is a shared experience. The business interruption claims are very many but low value. The event cancellation were very high value, but not that many of them. Because to be high value enough, it has to be a big event. There aren't as many big events as there are businesses that have business interruption cover. But the the big reasonable claims were paid, in my experience, generally relatively quickly, and that was sort of they sort of went away. And the, and the other ones, you know, I'm afraid are quite possibly headed towards sort of you know potential recourse against brokers in the usual way. It didn't it didn't work out for them, rightly or wrongly. And then, you know, there's the sort of spectre of claims against brokers, but that's a much, you know, longer term thing. So that they happen very quickly. And, you know, obviously, there's a lot of chat now about the reinsurance recoveries and a lot of chat about brokers, whether that's fair or not, frankly, it's so fact specific. But obviously, a, a generally held view is what were brokers meant to do to predict this and, you know, obtain cover that was meant to respond, obviously, you know. Depends on the facts, but that's uh, uh, a lot of people seem to hold that view. Gosh, I mean, I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams could have foreseen what's happened in the last six months. I mean, it just seems so completely beyond the pale. And that kind of brings me on to, to one of the questions that I had for you as a wider question. I mean, to what extent is what we're seeing now wholly unprecedented in the insurance market? I mean, how does this compare to other kind of almost catastrophic events, for example, the asbestos tail claims in, in the 80s and 90s, is this going to have the same kind of seismic repercussions for the market in the UK or is it going to be bigger or is it just simply unknowable at the moment? I think it's probably unknowable. I think the, the market is incredibly well capitalised nowadays. I think the loss estimates that we've seen our clients um, give, e- even after um, the FCA test case are expensive, but they are not something which should destroy a market, for instance. John Neal at Lloyd's has come out pretty strongly about, um, yes, this is a big event. And yes, for certain classes of business, it's seismic. But for the market itself, it's another very, very large cat event, if you class it all together. But it's another cat event. It's something that they go through on a fairly regular basis. But with the regulation and the capitalization, uh, it's materially different to the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. And obviously that that assumes that reinsurance recoveries are achievable. And there may be arguments about that. And there are mutterings by certain reinsurers uh, in that respect. But it doesn't feel as yet as like some of the single event catastrophes that, that the market has also had to to deal with. I was just going to come back, if I may, back to the point that that Ben was making on event cancellation, because I I, I absolutely echo what you said, Ben, on on it, it was it was incredibly busy for a while, and then it it tailed off, and I for for myself had to, to disappoint a lot of policyholders by pointing out the pandemic exclusions in their policy. So so somebody was thinking ahead uh, since they, they they are there in many policies. And were, I don't know the history of them, but I presume they went in after SARS or something like that. And I also had to disappoint many when actually they had to cancel it before 
there was any regulation cancelling them, which was uh, the case in in certain specific major events. So it was, I think, a disappointing time for quite a lot of policyholders. And whether or not, I have absolutely no idea, because it's not really my perspective of whether that is a broker issue, but those are the standard wordings in the market which reflect what was available. So it will be interesting to see how that gets tested going forward if if those do, as, as Ben foresees, actually get fought. In fact, I was going to just add to that, and that, that really links in with linking both questions. It seems to me that the, the, the really potentially really big losses and the sort of market-wide issues aren't going to be the immediate losses because I, mean, I completely agree, it's, it's a short, sharp, very unpleasant shock, but it's not unmanageable. It is a you know very serious loss if you count it as one generic loss. But it, but it's it's the much longer term. If we if the economy goes to pieces, that's where it really is going to hurt. And and as a result, you wind up with the sort of the follow-on claims, i.e., broker type claims, and so on, which go on and on. And if they fail, there's something else. And then there's a you know, and, and it, the, that impact is likely to be much more severe. But that's very unpredictable because if the economy starts to pick up quickly, then People will start to think, well, you know, you know, we could spend a lot of time and money fighting these things, or we could get on and make money doing whatever it is that we do in business. And then that dynamic will change. But it seems that the the initial losses, severe that they are, will be worn by the market, is my feeling. Whether that's overly optimistic, I don't know, but that's my current feeling. Does that reflect how you, James and Jana, view things? Absolutely. What's particularly interesting in some in, in the present context, where everybody is facing such an unprecedented situation, a much overused word, but it 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 is, is that you know, insurance has the ability and to to provide what it's supposed to do to do, which is to is to is to hedge the risk. But actually, that the focus of its function doing that has got much more focus from consumers as a one short sharp shock moment than it does normally because it, it often gets uh, into focus when there's severe weather events um, which in this country tend to be floods really but it's not so national so it's it's a moment when when everybody's thinking do i have the right insurance and that's no that's an opportunity for the insurers as well and do you think there's going to be lessons learned from this experience have they i mean as you said joanna you know a lot of insurers had pandemics on the radar since SARS. But do you think that this is also going to lead to some serious reflection on how people approach and underwrite risk now? I'm sure it will. Quite where that ends up, it's too early to say, I would have thought. Yeah, I'd agree with that. We're starting to talk to underwriters about what does the soft market wording look like compared to a wording that perhaps we would have seen in the early mid-2000s and into... um, the beginning of 2010 onwards, et cetera. What is that expansion of cover? Uh, Is it as large as people think um, or not? So that they can start to talk and engage with brokers and insureds about what type of policy do people really want to purchase? What is the risk that they want to cover? Because what has been pretty evident in a number of classes of business over the last few years, not just now, is that no matter how good the underwriting is, if the wording is broad and the prices are too cheap, you can't make money. And when you look at the Decile 10 project that Lloyd's have been engaged in, that started way before COVID. Uh, and that looked very closely at things like Marine and um, PIE and O 
for instance, those books were um, in difficulty before COVID. And lessons, yes, need to be learned. But as Joanna says, it's way too early to see whether we will be going back to a long-term hard market, which means that not just prices change, but wordings change, or whether we see this V-shaped recovery quickly with money looking for places to go to make returns. And as we saw so very quickly after the financial crisis, a huge amount of capital entering the market and uh, depressing prices because there was so much capacity around. Our next topic is probably what people predicted will be one of the big ticket issues um, for 2020. And that's the topic of climate change. And obviously it has been slightly bumped out of first or second place by um, COVID-19. There have been quite a lot of, you know, major weather events, fires and tropical storms this year that mean that it's not really gone away as an issue, I think, in terms of people's consciousness. We've also been seeing a lot of growth in climate change litigation internationally, principally in the US. And obviously that has effects on those companies, insurance policies and claims on those. Is this a trend that we're likely to see in the UK in the near future, in the long term future? And is it something that public liabilities insurers are concerned about in the UK at the moment? James? We will see it, yes. Are insurers fully engaged at an underwriting level? Probably not quite yet. COVID, they're becoming interested over the last few years, definitely, yes. COVID has very much pushed it back, but I wouldn't ever say it moved up into first or second place with insurers, certainly not on the claim side. There are some good uh, trackers around which uh, look at how much litigation there is outside of the US, and it's still very, very limited. There is a little bit of litigation in this country, but again, very limited. So from a claims perspective, it isn't really on people's radar. There are insurers internally with, with internal units who are looking at this very closely to try to understand what it means. And we've seen some big insurers, for instance, refuse now to provide cover for fossil fuel companies. So a lot of it is moving forward, whether it's moving forward because of underwriting risk or through not so much peer pressure, but public pressure around what do we do about climate change? How do we stop it becoming event? I think you could you could debate with insurers, but it is definitely an emerging risk, an emerging threat. But it looks like it's being chased through a lot of the financial reporting, for instance, and risk modeling of companies rather than insurers perhaps um, leading the charge around uh, climate change. Uh, I think because so many of them are having to look at a, a number of issues in their existing books over the last few years. So it is becoming an issue, but I wouldn't say it is yet a huge issue, certainly not at the claims level. And I don't think at the sort of front end underwriting level, it is within specific units, but not quite at the front end yet. I mean, I guess it's not from a, I, d I don't know, Ben, if you've had much experience of this. I feel the litigation that needs to start for it to become an insurance claims issue obviously is very embryonic at this stage in the UK market. And I'm not I'm not sure if you've kind of heard concerns from your clients or about any of these kind of matters. No, it depends what you call this topic. So if you if you call impact of climate change on the insurance markets actually bad weather, our weather isn't that bad. <laughs> so on a very narrow reading, it's unlikely to be that bad for a while, probably. But but then if you broaden it out to, for example, concerns about, you know, the makeup of cars and, you know, product recall issues and or pollution type claims and so on, 
you can broad, broaden it out relatively quickly to something that that does exist, but but really major genuine climate change claims either go to better barristers or aren't knocking around because I, I haven't seen them, and they don't. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be genuine direct disputes of that kind, or at least not many that I'm aware of. So I mean, obviously, there are localized ones, true, but it's not a you know, we're not hit by, you know, very severe gales and, and firestorms every year, for example, earthquakes, for example. So, but with time, that that probably will change. I would just add, I mean, as sort of Ben is, is alluding to, the insurance as a tool against extreme weather is there and providing cover. The insurance also remains actually a good warning in signaling risk in what is the uh, businesses where which will be uninsurable going forward, I think, uh, and that's that's signalled by premiums, deductibles, and the level of cover available. And those can be real incentives to businesses to clean up their act. So provide, you know, do provide a forward-looking risk management function in the in a sort of a way. And certainly in other parts of my firm's practice, we certainly see. A, you know, considerable focus on getting the terms of any sale of business or, or um, shares absolutely clear on who's bearing the risks going forward in these matters. But I'd echo what James and Ben says in terms of claims against the liability policies. M- most of the thousand or so claims around the world are actually against governments or public authorities requiring them to step up to the bar in performance of their duties. And there aren't, with the exception of a, a few claims against oil companies, there aren't, my understanding, many claims against corporates as yet. So so I think we're all, it's a bit like when we had, showing my age, the environmental legislation which came in quite some while ago, we thought there would be a, a tsunami of work related to it and claims. And there hasn't been. It's been a slow but steady development of, of a body of law which people are are complying with. And I guess, I mean, certainly if you were to look at the experience in other jurisdictions, particularly in America, the claims that have been taken against the likes of Exxon, they haven't been very successful to date. So, I mean, it may be that that is a line of litigation that runs into the sand if they come up against some very courts that are in the US that are very reluctant to engage with it. So, you know, it might not be something that ever really takes off in terms of private companies. I think we're pretty convinced it will take off. It will, yeah, it will take off. The American plaintiff bar is exceptionally good at reinventing itself. And I think when you look at what's happening in the regulatory space, even if the current legislation and current rules and regulations make it quite hard, you can see, uh, you you can immediately spot where there are some um, claims that will come off the back of the change in regulation. And in particular, the change in in some of the changes that are coming through about financial reporting of climate change risk. Yeah. And as the science of climate change improves, the linkage to potential duties of care becomes clearer. I mean, I remember attending a really interesting talk a few years ago by an American speaker about why some of the current litigation is at that point, which was, I think, two or three years ago, was not, this would be massively oversimplistic, but it was, he was explaining why if you have difficulty or 
or the fact pattern is that the discharge into the atmosphere is water or yeah, those aren't pollutants. So they don't count as, as, uh, as they don't trigger cover or they don't trigger liability for the relevant entity. And I was thinking, oh, yes, it begins to make more sense to me now how they're analysing it under their legislation. So, But that will change because people will get wiser to the issues. Just going back to a point that Joanna made in passing there, I mean, to what extent are these kind of developments going to genuinely drive positive change, do you think? Or do you think it's just going to be the case that certain industries become, as as James indicated, uninsurable? Positive change will come from lots of areas with climate change. Whatever we think about Mr. Trump, we are already seeing in the US, even under um, his administration, Uh, moves in and around regulation around climate change. And if it will happen under his administration, can you imagine what's going to happen under a different administration? And I think you can see it happening globally at the moment that lots of countries are coming together to drive lots of change. When you see, for instance, and this might seem a slightly um, offbeat topic, but the sport I like to follow is Formula One. Now, it's not been the most climate change focused uh, sport in the world, but what they did try to do some years ago was to drive efficiency through the use of hybrids, for instance. Honda have just pulled out already and said, we don't think hybrid engines are the future, so we're not going to be involved in a sport which deals with hybrid engines. We want to go fully down the battery route. Now, if you're seeing change coming from the likes of Trump's administration, or or people within his administration, and the likes of Honda, who are so well known for um, innovative petrol engines, all changing the way that they're moving. Change is coming, and insurance uh, and uh, underwriters are a big part of that eventually. Whether it comes now, whether at the vanguard, or whether they come later, who knows, but um, they will be part of it without a doubt. John and Ben, do you share James's optimism? Change will come. I have no doubt about that. I just hope it comes soon. <laughs> For the good of my children, I hope it comes soon. You know, the and this is uh, not directly related to insurance, but just indirectly related to answering the question. Obviously, there's the, the corporate social responsibility list comes out every year, doesn't it? It's the top 100 or uh, and the, the, the top 10. It's all the major utilities providers. And, I mean, as in the, you know, the, the major oil and gas industry companies because they firstly are vastly wealthy but secondly it it's their way of making money in the future is to make sure that they're still around in i mean they you know simply so if they are uninsurable they just won't wear that they will have to change in order to make money they're not thinking in the next five years and they're thinking next 50 plus years that picture must involve having an insurable entity which is you know thinking of those kinds of decades ahead, I think that change is inevitable. So our final topic for today is going from the global to the much more specific. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about the GG Fair presentation under the Insurance Act 2015. I mean, it's kind of surprising how little guidance we've had on it so far from the courts. Why do you guys think that is? The standard answers are because, first of all, arbitration. And secondly, because it's 2016 when it actually came in, so there'll still be very many insurance policies that are running their course until, you know, the end of roughly six years. So there will be a time lag. And in, in fact, we, writing McGillivray, we wrote a freestanding chapter for the Insurance Act, 
and have not integrated it into what I'd call the current or old law because so many claims proceed under the old law. And it's it, the time is coming and a lot of work will have to go into it to integrate them and to change it. But I, I think it, there'll still be a while before we get the really big fair presentation claims. There, there is one authority, the Scottish case, that, that's gone through it. But I mean, really thin on the real authorities, although I'm sure all of us have probably, frankly, now lots of live claims that are Insurance Act claims. They're still probably a while from certainly being fully reasoned judgments if, if they ever get that far. Is that consistent with your own experience, James? Not with my personal experience in that I wouldn't say I have many fair presentation claims at all. And I think that is a product of a soft market. I think it's a product of brokers and insurers. When it comes to to, to bigger risks, in the, so, so my, my practice is primarily FinLines. And so whilst we would do a lot of SME DNO type work, those types of policies are so um, incredibly broad, often sold on platform. The fair presentation is, is pretty limited. The questions asked are pretty limited and uh, cover is exceedingly broad. But then the other side is we're dealing with insurers of uh, hedge funds and big banks and that sort of stuff. And fair presentation, first of all, are you going to take a fair presentation point against a very big insured in a soft market? Probably not. I think as most insurers um, have agreed with brokers to contract out of certain elements of the Insurance Act, I think for good reason. I think some of these issues around fair presentation, material non-disclosure, et cetera, particularly for the London market, which I always think a really good way of understanding the London market is to understand where it came from. Lloyd's was a coffee shop. It was all about people getting together to drive a personal relationship. And it is incredible that the biggest insurance market in the world still has that sort of feel around it, that people are trying to do business together in a way that helps everybody. And so I think a lot of these fair presentation type issues are ones that, yes, they will litigate, of course, and Ben is right, still slightly new. The legislation, as he said, only came in a few years ago, so we have a long tail to get through first. But I never thought it was necessarily going to be a big driver of claims. There will be some very large claims, yes. There will be some court guidance, yes. But it doesn't fit within the London way of working. It doesn't fit within that feel of trying to work together. So I might be wrong, but I'm never, I've not been convinced that we will see a huge number of those types of claims come through. I would agree with what James says in that I, I don't have as many claims as Ben, I think, that are involving fair presentation. I had expected that that would be an issue, but actually it hasn't materialised. So it's it's actually, in, in my practice, only materialised in, in a handful of claims where, in fact, the parent company of the insureds are, are US. So I think they might come at it from a different perspective in terms of where they are in placing, actually, at the moment. Obviously, they've got a different law. but And almost all of the policies I see, they have contracted out of the whole the meat of the act for the purposes of certainty, because they're complex risks and they want to be really clear about what they've signed up to. So it hasn't been such a big issue. It would be nice if there were a few cases that went through, if only to see the completed McGillivray, but it would be really nice <laughs> um, to see more of it. I completely agree with all of that, including the, all the work that will go into McGillivray. 
And there will come a time when all cases that are non-disclosure misrep cases are fair presentation cases. So it, it will happen. It's just it's just been really slow. I have to say, I thought by now there would be a number of leading authorities. We're now solidly beyond four years since it came in, and we just don't have those authorities, which is surprising. And do you think that that's primarily due to, as Joanna said, you know, people using contractualization essentially to, to mitigate their risk? I think pr- probably a combination of, of all the factors we've all listed. I think it's um, I think over the next couple of years, I be, would be very surprised if there weren't some big decisions because we're just the Marine Insurance Act 1906 is just running out of road, really. I think, you know, that's that's uh, inevitable. But we'll, you know, I've been wrong about lots of things in the past. I'm sure, you know, I may be proved wrong on this as well. So, Well, that's all we have time for today, guys. Thank you very much for joining me. So thanks to Joanna Page, James Cooper, Ben Lynch QC. Before you go, I have one question that we've been asking all of our guests on the series. Um, and that is, um, if you hadn't been a lawyer, what career would you have pursued? So I'm going to start with James. A sailing instructor. Nice. Joanna? Got to be the backing vocalist in a in a band. I like how no one's saying, oh, I would have been an accountant. That was, you know, my other calling. <laughs> what type of band, Joanna? Oh, that's a very good one because that changes from time to time. And occasionally I flirt with the idea that maybe now or never I should be the uh, the lead vocalist. But I think those days are gone. How about you, Ben? I, I'd be a vet. And that's mainly because when I took Silk, which was all of about 10 minutes ago, uh, our, our five-year-old son it was advertised to our three-year-old daughter and our five-year-old son as dad, daddy's new job, to which he excitedly said, oh, are you going to be a vet now? And uh, t- he was genuinely disappointed when it turned out I wasn't. So I think to, to at least to keep him happy, I'd have to go with that. Most children, you know, the trend is usually for children to do jobs that make their parents proud. It's very rare that someone con- contemplates a change of career to make their children proud, but uh, first time for everything. Can I share one story very quickly? Because my children told me this this morning, which is that Tim Peake, the astronaut, was talking about the kudos he got at school, at his kids' school from being an astronaut. And he said that at the, at the school his children went to, there were two astronauts amongst the parents and only one fireman. And unsurprisingly, it was the fireman that got the kudos, not the astronauts. That is sickening. Imagine all the training you have to go through for that. So there you have it. Lots of food for thought in that episode and from a number of different perspectives. I'm very grateful to all of our panellists for taking the time to join me and share their wealth of experience with us. So thanks again to Joanna Page, James Cooper and Ben Lynch QC. I hope that you enjoyed our discussion as much as I did and that you'll join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Podcast.